Let's bow together as we humble ourselves before we look into the Word of God, as we remember our God is the Creator God, the God who has spoken and brought into existence all things. He's also spoken and given us an understanding revelation of who He is in the Word of God. Let's, Let's pray. Well, Father, as we have the privilege of reading your God-breathed Word, as we have opportunity this morning to be reminded that you are not a God who has been created, but that you are the Creator God, Lord, cause us to have ears that are attuned to listen carefully to what you have said. We have so many voices in our culture today who demand and desire to be sought after and worshipped and pursued. But Lord, there is none like you. You are the one we are made for. You are the only one who can satisfy the longings of our hearts. You're the one that we were designed to worship. And so we pray today as we look into your word that you would teach us the importance and the, the absolute reasonableness of making you the one who is chief in our hearts and lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you got your notes open before you uh, from your bulletin, you'll notice there's a question there that starts off this morning, a question of general knowledge about what is, would you say, the most frequently discussed problem in the Bible. I'm going to give you a second to write down your answer, what you think that would be. The most frequently discussed problem in the Bible. There are many answers we could put there, of course, but I would suggest to you that David Pallison, the great uh, helpful biblical counselor and author, a very wise man who studied the scriptures in depth, he insists and suggests that the best answer to that question is really idolatry. Idolatry. He goes on to explain that the Old Testament, of course, we know deals with that topic many times. If you know the Ten Commandments, you know that one of the commandments is uh, you shall not make any graven images of God, which clearly was speaking to the trend of that culture in which they were uh, crafting sort of uh, various deities that uh, were very common at that time. And many times throughout the Old Testament, as you'll know, there's the golden calf and on and on we go with Dagon and and the God of the Philistines and there's Baal worship and on and on we go through the Old Old Testament. We know that's a serious problem that God speaks against. But we also know that if you carry it over into the New Testament, we get into the latter part of the New Testament and we get to the book of 1 John and in the fifth chapter of 1 John, near the last part of of the chapter there, he gives this warning. Little children... Keep yourselves from what? Idols. Keep yourself from idols. So it really is a theme that is found throughout the scriptures. And of course, the background, if you know anything about the times in which the Bible was composed, I'm thinking of the Old Testament time as well as the New Testament era in the first hundred years of of A.D., you know that there is... A common uh, there was just widespread existence of many deities, all sorts of images of deities that are housed in 
various temples and holy places and shrines all over the place. In a typical Roman city at the time the New Testament was written, you would go into that city with a sophisticated shopping area, you go where there's a huge arena, you're going to go in there with a, a downtown area, lots of housing, and then you go into a section where there's temples all over the place on every corner. Just like we have churches here, there were temples to all sorts of gods. And as you know, in the time of the Romans, there was the, the god of war, Mars. There was the god of Venus, which was the god of, goddess of love and beauty. There were the god of uh, fire, Vulcan. And in, in Ephesus, the, the city that we've been thinking about here, where our study of Acts has taken us, the main attraction in the city of Ephesus was this massive, exquisitely crafted temple devoted to the worship and veneration of Diana. And she is the goddess of fertility and the goddess of wealth. It was so impressive, this temple to Diana, or another name was Artemis. It was made, uh, it made the list of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's how impressive this particular temple was. It is said that kings and nobles from all over the known world were uh, involved in donating one each, uh, sorry, different ones of the columns of 163 columns that were a part of this massive building, and that those columns were decorated with gold and precious jewels. I mean, it was just absolutely stunning in its beauty. And you would, it's safe to say that the devotion to Diana and the idolatry associated with that was just woven into the fabric of life there in Ephesus. Now just to think that we're not talking about something that's obscure and something that we can't relate to, let me just suggest to you, might it not be possible that we in our sophisticated modern age have various impressive temples where various gods are still worshipped? Might it be that some of the impressive and expensive shrines in our culture today might be thought of as the skyscrapers that impress so many of us as we go and look at the skyline of New York City, worshiping the God of what? Massive wealth and success in terms of how people define material success. And then you drive by these immense sports arenas, which costs billions of dollars and they are probably we'd say donated or dedicated to the gods of athleticism people who do amazing physical feats on the ball field then there are the casinos that are all around this area in which you see the shrines uh, that have been raised up to the god of chance quote unquote then there are the massive malls that you find scattered all over in this culture in which we find they too are de dedicated to the God of materialism that promises us endless happiness and contentment because you can buy almost anything you want under the sun. Now we've even upped that and so we've changed that in our society so that now you don't even need to go to the mall now. Now we have the gods of the internet that allow us to just click a few times and things are dropped off on your front porch within a certain number of hours or days so that you can also find yourself 
able to shop, not even have to drop. It just is dropped off in front of you. Not to mention that our society still is very much enamored with the God of, of pornographic entertainment that is found on the internet and much forms of the entertainment industry which continually are providing to us some escape and some stories that are written for us that somehow are denigrating to so many areas of life. Now, let me be clear. There's nothing inherently wrong with buying nice clothes or shoes or books or whatever you're buying, whether it's in a mall or online. There's nothing wrong with meeting people through the Internet. There's nothing wrong with becoming famous or enjoying a sports event. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that the human heart loves to take good things and somehow turn them into ultimate things. Things that were never designed to be able to do. Sometimes we think that these things become things we can't live without, things that we crave, things that will do anything in order to have them. And that, my friend, is the real understanding of an idol. If you look in your notes, the word idol there has been helpfully described by Tim Keller as things which become more important to us than God himself. These are things that absorb our hearts. They absorb our imaginations more than, than God. Idols are things that we seek to give us what only God can give us. Now the text of Scripture we're looking at this morning is Acts 19, and I hope you have a copy of the Bible available to you, either on some electronic gadget that uh, you hopefully you have silenced and not being interrupted by anything else, but you can look on there or look in your Bible, the Pew Bible in front of you, Acts 19. We're going to pick up and look here at a verses, 20 verses, beginning with verse 21, because we're going to look at this narrative that this is a one, it clearly goes together as a story, and it's rather extensive, devoted to this disgruntled silversmith union members who are gathered, and you look at them, and there's a near riot that takes place. But there's much, so much more going on than just this riot. Clearly, Luke is trying to, to take what at first may seem to be irrelevant to the bigger story here. It may at first seem rather obscure to read about some of the things these people are upset about. But as you look carefully at it, I think you're going to notice that there are idolatry issues that run throughout this passage of Scripture in this account. And we're going to find two insights into the dynamics of spiritual warfare that are going on. Let's follow along with me now as we read in uh, Acts 19, beginning in verse 21. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in his spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia and saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And by the way, that's another theme that Luke is going to take here, and he's going to say, from now to the end of Acts, Rome is on the destination of where Paul is determined to go, if the Lord would allow it. And having sent them, sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, Paul himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose a small, no small disturbance concerning the way. 
For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis or Diana, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all Asia and the world worship would even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, by the way, 25,000 people strong could fit into that theater. You can see the remains even today in Turkey. Dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, <laughs> the disciples would not let him. And also some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. And so... Then some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. And some in the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them, all as they shouted for about, how long does it say? Two hours not two minutes two hours great is artemis or great is diana of the ephesians and after quieting the multitude the town clerk after two hours the town clerk said men of ephesus what man is there after all who does not know that the city of ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great diana or artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven and since these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and to do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers or temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session, the proconsuls are available, let them bring charges to one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affair since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we shall be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after this, he dismissed the assembly. Here we find this text, I think, one of the fascinating components that Luke has woven together here is you see a dynamic going on here, a dynamic of spiritual warfare. It doesn't look that way when you first read it, but I'm convinced that's what's going on. And it's a warfare that's not just happening in that era. It's a warfare that continues on even to this day that's waged on the level of heart idolatry versus devotion to Christ, the one who is truly worthy of worship and adoration and humble praise. 
Luke has given us a number of verbal indicators in this text that this battle being waged in this incident is really a battle for like a, a worship matchup here. He's got a battle for heart devotion based on this concept of greatness. And if you look in the text carefully, uh, you notice it in verse 17 and you compare that with verse 27. In 17 we read that the Lord Jesus was being magnified, which is a Greek word that has as a part of it the word mega. He is made big, superb, supreme, glorious, splendorous. And if you compare that and notice the same word appears in verse 27, alluding to Diana should not be dethroned from her superbness, her glory, her greatness, her being mega in the eyes of people. And so you're reading this contrast that has now developed after two years of ministry where Paul has presented to so many different people this concept that the only true God, the living God, the creator God is the only one worthy to be worshipped. Jesus Christ is the revelation of such God. And that the word of God, you'll notice in verse 20, has been growing. It has been growing in its influence. It's been changing people's hearts and lives mightily. It has been prevailing over the kingdom of darkness, I would argue. People have now come into the kingdom of light. They have now been set free from this blindness and darkness and thinking that they're all caught up in this worship of Diana. People have finally been set free from this occultic oppression in this city of devotion to things that are absolutely evil and of the demonic realm. And we noticed last week that the gospel had transformed the hearts, not just of a few, but many people. And in such a way, if you look at verse 19, that these Ephesians, in some of them, publicly renounced all of their devotion to any form of loyalty to the magic, to the psychic practices that had been common at that time. They've burned their books out in the open and said, listen, we are turning our back on this completely because we know we only want to please God himself and Jesus Christ, his only son. Our loyalty is to him and him alone. You see, the greatness of Jesus Christ in the gospel was really breaking this grip that had been holding so many people in the town of Ephesus, the, the grip of idolatry. The new life of the gospel had now dispelled some of the old life that was common in this place. Donald Gray Barnhouse, that great preacher in the earlier part of the 1900s, told the illustration one time of walking in a in a spring morning in which it's absolutely still. There's no wind blowing anywhere. And he noticed as he was walking out of doors that for some strange reason, some trees that had held their leaves on the branches all winter long, for some reason, those leaves at this point, now having survived the winter and the ravages of all that cold weather, now here comes, those leaves are now beginning to fall off. Here's one, here's another one. And there's another one. And he began to think, what in the world? Why would they come down now? And the more he began to think about it, it became clear to him that the reason was because 
with the warming temperatures, the sap now is beginning to flow within these trees. And as the sap is moving and there in those branches now, you're seeing at the end of them little buds are starting to appear. And the signs of life now are what? Pushing out all forms of deadness of those old leaves on the tree. And that, in a sense, is a metaphor for what was happening in the city of Ephesus. It was a sense in which the hearts of more and more people had gained now a new affection in their hearts. They had a new desires. They had a new love for Christ that is now beginning to take precedent in everything that's happening in their life. And it's beginning to show that all the old forms of their devotion is now fading away. And so there's, I think there's a quote in your notes there from the great Puritan pastor Thomas Chalmers. He, he came up with this dynamic of all of the change that, that takes place in the life of a believer. He says, the expulsive power of a new affection. The new affection is the new longing to please Christ, the longing to love Christ, the longing to live for Christ is now beginning to see a, a, a change in letting go of those old ways of living. New patterns have now begun to take place. And so many people in the town of Ephesus had stopped spending money. They no longer were buying these little trinkets, all these different shrines, all these occultic practices and these little uh, metal silver emblems that people were selling them. They'd stopped giving themselves over to what Ephesians 4 talked about, which was must be commonly practiced in Ephesus at that temple. They no longer gave themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. They weren't buying into that old way of living anymore. All these changes that had taken place within them were voluntary changes. These were things that were organic. These were things that were heartfelt. These were things that nobody was making them do by threatening them. But it happens when the gospel transforms lives. If there are enough lives being transformed in one particular area, guess what? The, that community, that form of society, that segment of society begins to change. If you read down through church history, oh, what great stories of the record of history when the revival of the Holy Spirit's work in bringing about the conversion of people, bringing them to saving faith in Christ. What changes take place? What new affections are working an expulsion of the power of, of, the, of the new gospel to help them have new direction in life? I have before me here a summary of some of the, the events that took place in Wales in the early 1900s in the ministry of Evan Roberts and others at that time. There was an amazing transformation in the society. It says this, in a period of two or three years in this part of Wales, gambling and alcohol businesses closed down. It's like saying no more lottery sales. Bars would just shut their doors. Theaters, concert halls, sporting venues closed down for lack of patrons. Why? Where were those people? They were in prayer meetings. 
They were thrilled to seek after God instead. Thousands of people who had outstanding debts, people who owed money for this, for that, for this, for that, they made a point to pay those debts and make it right with the people that they owed money to. Profanity virtually ceased. I won't go into a lot of details on that, but they were so the animals that they used to, in the mines, the, the, uh, the mules that they used, they were so used to hearing foul language uh, to, to help them in their normal course of events that they no longer heard those words. They didn't know what to do. The animals would just stand there. They're waiting to hear those, those foul comments and commands again. Families were reunited and restored. Money that used to be wasted away on alcohol was now begun to be spent on the needs of their children and their families. Churches overflowed in meetings that would last all day and sometimes all night. Just an amazing number of people coming to Christ. You think about talking about a changing society. Do you think everybody's thrilled about that? I guarantee they weren't. But those, some of those things, some of those changes clearly need to change. So much so that there was so much radical improvement in society that the police department had to start a scene group because they had nothing to do. There were no crimes to be involved in arresting anybody at certain times. They just sat around all day. And so we ask ourselves, are we in need of this kind of work in our day? Oh, that God would do it. And He will do it as we faithfully proclaim the gospel one life at a time who comes to faith. What a contrast to see all of the good that happens with new affections. Do you compare that with what's going on with all these people who are so angry here? These angry demonstrations, these people caught up in this idolatrous devotion to the worship of Diana, it's a sad situation. These craftsmen, these businessmen, they are invested they are devoted. I mean, this is their life, man. And they are committed to the demonic lie that this Diana is great. That's the emphasis in the text. Look at it. Verses 27, verse 28, verse 34. The word there keeps, keeps being used. Great, great, great. It's like they have to keep reminding themselves that and insist that everybody else not lose sight of that. Here they've got this temple that dominated the town of Ephesus, constructed basically to say what? This is going to celebrate the greatness of Diana. Well, it did, obviously, for a while, but guess what? That building no longer exists today. You can find the foundation of it, but obviously there have been many armies and different people who have come through and ravaged that thing and torn it all down. And this carved statue of Diana had no power to do anything. That statue had no power to change or gratify the hearts or the longings of the people who came into that temple. The idol of Diana was being elevated. It was being magnified far beyond what this statue was able to do. And the forces of wickedness in heavenly places, they love to elevate the greatness of created things. They love to, to, to point to all of the wonderful things you can find in this world. Promising 
again and again to provide meaning to our lives, to provide to us a fulfillment that we long for in the created things of this world, offering and promising somehow to make us find significance as people in the things of this world. There are so many idols that beckon to our hearts with these promises that are never going to be fulfilled. We're told in so many words that all we need to secure hope and meaning in this world, we're told again and again, you need romantic love. All the movies on the Hallmark Channel keep saying that's what you need. Everything ends on a wonderful note. Or what you need is a spouse. What you need is a family. What you need is money, more money. What you need is a physical beauty. You just need to get rid of those age spots and you're going to be so fulfilled. Or wrinkles or whatever it is. You're going to need to be in good physical fitness. That's going to make your life full and have meaning and significance. All you need is your health. The Bible sounds the warning again and again against such misleading assurances. That's why we've read today portions of Isaiah 44. I encourage you to read that again. Psalm 115, reminding us of the greatness of our God. Because what we read in Scripture is there's a distinguishing difference between the created greatness we see in nature, in this created world. There is greatness there for sure. But that's nothing compared to the greatness of the God who made it all. That's what the Scriptures are reminding us. The God who made all things, He is not fashioned, He's not made by any craftsman. And I again would just remind you, if you look over 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, I just was looking at that this morning, thinking about that as the passage in which Paul speaks to people who came out of idolatrous worship. Romans and people who came out of uh, people of that Roman society who, who at one time went to these different shrines and idol temples. He says to them in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, talking about the idea of whether to eat meat that's been offered to idols, he says, uh, There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we exist through him he's talking about the greatness of god having said previously verse 4 about eating these things sacrificed to idols we know there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there's no god but one for even if there are so-called gods whether in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many gods and many lords he says but there's only one god the true god the creator god My friends, when good things become ultimate things, they become enslaving things, destructive masters that will ruin our lives. You see, the God of this world is continually seducing our generation, and every generation really, with an endless list of these good things that cannot satisfy our deepest longings. Think about it. What do we see so widespread in our culture today? We see promiscuous hookup culture a whole application on your phone tinder is all about meeting people only for the purpose of being intimate with them sexually don't even know these people a hookup culture and what does it do it leaves people feeling used it leaves them empty 
Then there's the promises made by the alcohol and the narcotic drugs that result in misery, debauchery, and destruction for those who become enslaved by them. There's the seductive power of pornography that leaves men and women further alienated from each other and dehumanized by solo sex. Our Western world promotes so many idols, the idols of money, idols of power, materialism. And Paul summarizes this tragic outcome of idolatrous devotion with these profound words. If you don't have this recorded in your Bible or underlined, you need to write this down in your notes. Philippians 3.19. Philippians 3.19. Having talked about Paul in his own story about how he used to take the things that were his idol to find himself becoming a person of great success in his performance of good things. All that's become worthless to me. He says, I just want to know Jesus. And then he goes on to say, oh, what a shame to look in our culture around us because the people around us and their idolatrous devotion, their God is their appetite. They glory in their shame. They don't mind that what they do is wrong, immoral, and inappropriate. They just, they're proud about it. Have you ever noticed that? People who are now celebrating and we have pride in who we are and our sexual expressions. Why do they have to make such a big deal about being so proud of it? Because they're caught up in the idolatrous desire to somehow find true meaning in that which is going to not be found in this created world. They've set their minds on earthly things. And Paul says their end is destruction. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to overthrow the addictive and enslaving devotion of heart idols. Praise God. Praise God. It can happen in first century Ephesus. It can happen on Long Island, New York, and around the world in the 21st century. But it will not happen if we don't share the gospel. Paul had been sharing and speaking and dialoguing and helping remind people of the truth of who God truly is and who His Son, Jesus Christ, is and the wonders of what Christ has done for us in His cross and resurrection. Now, the next quick point I want to make here, point number two. In this text in Acts 19... We find that when idols are threatened by gospel-inspired godliness, the reaction is chaos, confusion, and outbursts of anger. Chaos, confusion, outbursts of anger. See, when the gospel sets people free, frees them up from all this bondage to fear, keeping them enslaved, all of these superstitions, all these spells, all these magic formulas that had been holding these people under their sway for so long, we are able to see that the utter worthlessness of idolatry at that moment, when you can see past all that, you begin to see this is nothing. And when the followers of Jesus Christ realize that these silver shrines of the Temple of Diana were basically worthless trinkets, and these union workers now are facing the downturn in their profits, guess what? They get all riled up. And the intensity of their anger is 
is very much emphasized here in Luke's account. There's lots of anger here in this text. And sadly, when so many people of these citizens of Ephesus, they're unable to perceive the superficiality of this goddess Diana. They can't see it. They are convinced that there is true greatness here. And in some ways, we shouldn't be surprised that they would think that because idols have a blinding effect upon those who are following them. And I would suggest that another time you read Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel 14 is another very significant passage on idols. And he talks there about, listen, I'm talking to my people who set up idols in their hearts. So we're not talking about a statue here. But the effect of, a, of an idol in our heart is that it is put right in front of our face. And it's a stumbling block for our, as a, as a form of iniquity. Right in front of the face. So if you put your hand right in front of your face, what are you going to see? You see your hand and not much else. It blinds you. And so when you have an idol that's in your heart and devoted to that, you can't see very well what's going on in the spiritual realm. And that was true there in Ephesus. It's true today. All these craftsmen believed what? They believed the concept that gods made with hands are true gods. That's what they're thinking. And they're getting all upset with anybody suggests anything else other than that. Now think about that. You're the craftsman. You make something and you're saying, whatever I make has great powers worthy of being worshipped. It's illogical. But that is the power of the lie. The power of idolatry to, to, to blind people to what really is true. So they're angry that Paul's gospel ministry somehow convinced these people that the opposite is true. Verse 26. Paul's saying, listen, these gods are made with hands. They're no gods at all. That's a true statement, right? And what is the response to that kind of a true statement? Well, it escalates. And verse 23 indicates things get out of control. No small disturbance. What a, what a way of saying things are getting out of hand big time. And we've seen that in our society today, have we not? Riots that break out. People who are out of control, angry, taking to the streets, or causing all sorts of destruction. And notice that, that, again, some commentators have suggested that when this was occurring, perhaps in Ephesus, there had been special games that occurred there, like Olympic games that would be held in Ephesus certain times of the year, May, I think it was the month. And so they think that additional numbers of people were in town at this time, so therefore that's why they think that these, this additional crowd would have been swept up into all this, and they're all now in the big arena there that holds 25,000 people. And there's mass hysteria. An irrational rage takes place in which people there are in a screamathon. That's what I call it, a screamathon for two hours. Just ranting and ranting, saying that Diana was great. But my question to you that I keep thinking is well, just how great was she? How great was this great goddess that you somehow go on and on with? Yes, she's a popular tourist destination. Yes, there's big business associated with her. Boy, the money is just pouring in from all these gullible people who come in and got to have a little shrine and take it home as a souvenir. Got to put it on the front of your chariot 
or you put on, on what was like our dashboard today, people put their little, little trinkets there thinking somehow that's going to bring you good luck. But the temple was really a magnet for criminals. If you got into that temple, you could not be arrested. So guess who would hang out there all the time? It was a place where people were greedy, con men, who were profiting off all kinds of naive tourists. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Times Square. I mean, you know, the stuff still happens. Now, was greatness to be found in this idolatrous world of Diana? Had Diana ever changed anybody's heart? Had Diana and that statue sitting in this massive building, was that able to impart life to liberate anybody from guilt, from shame, from despair? Nope. But everybody associated with that big idolatrous world, they insisted and defended the lie that Diana truly was great. So they're worked up. I mean, they are out of control, worked up. Just cannot be spoken to for the longest time. I think they would have ripped apart anybody who would have stood up and said something opposite than what they wanted to hear. But calmer heads prevailed. Nobody got hurt. Probably because somebody had the wisdom to keep Apostle Paul out of there. Because I think it would have been worse than lions ripping him apart. Now where does all this have to do with us? I want to put in front of you here a suggestion of two books that might be helpful for you to follow up if you want to hear more about this topic. One is the book by Timothy Keller, Counterfeit Gods. Counterfeit Gods, a very good book, talking about um, the, the three main gods of this world, power, sex, and money. And he deals with them in a very thought-provoking way in our society today. And there's another excellent book called Gospel Treason by Brad Bigby. And the subtitle is Betraying the Gospel with Hidden Idols. And Bigby in his book has such insight into the issues of our own hearts and the idols that all of us have and struggle with and still struggle with, even as a Christian. He says, if you will find in your relationships, are there places where you get angry? Are there situations in your marriage where you and your spouse are really going at it with each other? And you say, wow, this is really not what I ever thought we'd be doing and saying to each other. And you say, where's all this anger come from? My attitude toward my boss, it's an unbelievable amount of anger that's boiling inside of me. He says, if you trace that anger down into your heart, and he calls it the lava of our anger that has now spilled out Maybe some things you've said or things that you've done or things that you did after the moment when you were so heated and hot. He says, you're going to find a heart that is determined to not lose what you think you absolutely must have. Oftentimes when there's that kind of anger, we are determined to protect what we cannot afford to lose. I've got to have it. If you get in my way and if you somehow block that, I am just livid. Maybe it's we're longing for comfort. Maybe we're longing for control. By the way, I think that's what was going on in Ephesus. People who are involved in the occult are trying to what? Make life work for them by certain spells. Get certain outcomes that they want. And so some of us have a control, a need to be in control, a need to make things work our way, to make life work 
fit the way I want it to work. Some of us are looking for a respectful reaction from others around us, whatever it is. But one of the ways we discover our heart idols is to ask ourselves the question, am I willing to sin in order to get what I want? Am I willing to sin in order to get it? Am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose it? And do I run to this idol for refuge instead of running to God? Oftentimes we find this chaos in our relationships. It's not primarily rooted in the insensitivity of people around us. But Bigney says it may have indeed to do with the heart idols that's in you and in this other person. He says, the only cure for idolatry is the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want to quote Bigney. He says this, Jesus died on the cross to set us free from living on substitutes, that is, idols. To set us free from cramped hearts that are full of all sorts of worthless idols. The gospel is the only hope if we're to escape wasting our life in the pursuit of counterfeits. Don't just say no to idols. Bigney says, say yes to all that Christ is for you in the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Turn it over in your mind. Hold it up to the light of God's glory. And like a gem, let it, in, let it reflect shafts of powerful, life-giving color into your dark heart that's crowded with idols. In other words, we're to engage in spiritual battle. Not to sit back passively, let things happen. Oh, these are just the things, I'm, I'm born this way, I have these desires. No. When you're feeding your idols, you are preserving and protecting and promoting them. And oftentimes you find yourself lying, you find yourself involved in some form of deception where that's part of the scenario because that's the idol that's beginning to take control. Whereas God's Word will set us free from the idols of our, ho our hearts by exposing this deception. And the Holy Spirit uses the Scripture as a means of spotlighting and searching out the recesses of our hearts where the idols love to hide. And so He encourages us to soak our minds in the Word of God. Don't just read it, but chew on it. Meditate on it. Pray it back to God slowly. Take a verse, hold it up in your mind and think about it. Turning it over like a five-carat diamond, letting the Holy Spirit do His job in reflecting its truth like brilliant shafts of colored light down into your heart. And all I can say, my friend, is the more I've meditated on this text, I find myself saying, Lord Jesus, I want to find my joy in you. Not in this world, not in the things of this world. I want to make you, Lord Jesus, my treasure. I want to delight in your love. I want to delight in your forgiveness. I want to delight in your provision to rescue me from myself. I want to be encouraged that you are not finished with me. I want to be reminded that you will help me. You will hold me fast from falling away. And you will complete the work that you've begun in me. That's the hope for all of us who are idolaters. It's found in Christ and Him alone. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are very weak and uh, not very strong against the onslaught of the, the perverse and empty promises of idols. Lord, there's not one of us in this room that doesn't struggle with a heart idol. And we pray that today as we're invited now to the Lord's table that you would help us, Lord, to once again be reminded of the greatness of what a treasure you are, Lord Jesus. You are the only one worthy of our worship. We pray that you would be honored among us. May this be a time, Lord, when which you forgive us for our many compromises, many substitutes that we have taken up in our hearts other than you. May it be a time of sweet fellowship where we once again are reminded of the glories of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.